Welcome to Devices and Desires. We live in a world driven by narratives, narratives of progress, success, and happiness. On this podcast, we're taking a hard look to analyze those cultural narratives, which seem like solid concrete on the ground, in order to find out where they're cracking apart and failing to deliver on their promises. The goal is to imagine what it might look like for the promise of Jesus Christ to flourish in the midst of a broken world. Uh, We as hosts will bring our perspective as Anglican Christians, but whoever you are, we hope you'll track with us as we examine the devices and desires of our own hearts and those of our culture. I'm Father Brian Wandell from Church of the Atonement in Buffalo, New York, and I have with me here again Father Andrew Tebow. Uh, Andrew, where are you at again? Texas. Arlington, Texas. Texas. And we have finally thawed. It's a weird experience to be in Texas and have three degree temperatures. I actually took a picture from, on my uh, weather app a week ago, and it was three degrees. And then I took a picture of it yesterday. It was 83 degrees. Oh wow, that's crazy. <laughs> three degrees in Texas. Hell is literally freezing over. Seriously. <laughs> uh, and Mr. James Kibbe, uh, the source of the music that you heard at the beginning of that episode there. Uh, Jimmy, where are you right now? I am right now in the town of Tonawanda, New York. So like north, north, north Texas, something like that. That's right. Yeah. So, yep. Town of Tonawanda, actually noteworthy, uh, had one of the original NFL teams in 1920. That is pretty noteworthy, yeah. I believe they only had one game, yeah. Yeah, Uh, well, I mean, it still counts, right? Yeah, that's right. That's That's my argument I have with my wife about I did wrestling in high school. I I did participate in one meet, so I was a wrestler in high school. She seems to think that isn't good enough, but... You will always be a wrestler in my heart, Jimmy. Ah, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. Uh, And we're joined today. We have a guest, uh, Mrs. Danielle Hitchin, who is joining us from... Where are you at, Danielle? I am in Springfield, Virginia, just south of D.C. Excellent. I'm really excited for this episode. Uh, The topic for today that we're going to be talking about is about children's formation and especially children's religious formation. And uh, certainly all of us who are on this uh, episode today have some direct experience. It comes out of some of our own experiences, but also our thoughts as we try to imagine, uh, again, what it looks like for the gospel to flourish from within the broken secular culture that we live in. Uh, before we get going, uh, Danielle, uh, I, I, I wanted to reach out to you for this uh, because uh, of the thoughtfulness that I know you've put into your own work. And that work specifically in these last five years now um, has related to catechesis books. What, what is catechesis books? So catechesis books is my publishing company, which seeks to produce materials for um, helping children grow in the knowledge and love of the Lord. And we seek to produce books that go beyond just Bible stories to actual theology to start giving kids a faith vocabulary from which their parents can build a lifelong walk of faith with their children. Mm. And, uh, you know, so I've got some titles right in front of me here. You've got one on Holy Week. Mm -hmm. You have one on just Bible Basics, the counting book. I think that was the first one. Is that right? It was, yep. Uh, one on the Apostles' Creed, the Psalms, um, from Eden to Bethlehem, an animal's primer. One of the phrases that comes up through the board books here is that you call them primers. Uh, Why do you use that word? 
because they're each concept books. So every book's theme is built around a particular basic concept that children need to learn. That's counting, movement, um, shapes, animals, opposites, all those sorts of things. So that's where the primer title comes from. And we just try to break down some big theological concepts into very basic bite-sized pieces and pair them with the mnemonic of the, you know, shapes or colors or alphabet or whatnot so that it helps children remember them and builds their faith vocabulary. This is, so this this really actually leads into what, what I want to talk about and get into in this episode, uh, which is uh, your approach in doing some of this is different than what we'd sometimes expect with children's board books, uh, where we see Noah and uh, a half dozen recognizable animals uh, that are fluffier than they would normally be in the wild. <laughs> uh, and then uh, and then there's a nice rainbow at the end or something like that. Uh, you've got some like pretty heavy materials uh, there, uh, not only on the Psalms, which are not typically, we typically think about with children, um, but, uh, you know, kind of story of redemption, the Apostles' Creed, uh, some of these different things. Uh, so it's, it's a very different perspective than we would think about how we relate faith to children. Uh, so that's that's actually what I, what I want to get into. In many ways, my my reasoning for kind of jumping into this topic uh, was certainly thinking about my own experience. Um, in particular, so my, my first six years of raising kids was uh, also in the D.C. area, uh, an area which I'm sure Danielle can attest. You know, most people who are raising kids are not near their own parents, right? And so there's not much extended family in the area. And uh, I, I, I had the experience of seeing a lot of people start with child raising and feeling like they're floundering because there's just not much of a context for wise practice or how to, how to deal with things. Uh, and then, you know, so I, I moved then um, uh, to Buffalo, New York, and I've been here for the last four years. I've been near my parents, uh, but I do live within uh, the, the city itself. And similarly, even people who are from this area many people have moved into the city from elsewhere, and therefore you get a similar experience of people not being near their family. And uh, so what I just see is kind of a lack of, uh, of mooring uh, of those connections to ways that people have formed children in the past. And so that, that's the question that I wanna start out with as we think about the culture that we're in, is, uh, is, is I wanna ask all of you, Danielle also, but, uh, what what it, what seems to be the cultural narratives that we assume most of the time about how children learn and grow and and then in particular relating that to picking up re- religion and faith danielle could you kick us off there sure so i think that sometimes adults think that when children um will suddenly turn a specific age and then just be ready for something. So be ready for a serious discussion or be ready to make a big decision. Or in the case of, um, you know, Christian children, be ready to learn about the Bible or make a commitment to Christianity. But the fact is that all children, like all human beings, are spiritual beings and their spiritual formation starts at birth. So if we're going to um, take an assumption that they're not going to be ready to learn about Christianity until they're, say, 8 or 10 or 12, we're missing out on a decade of their life in which we could be forming them, deeply forming them from the core of their being from their earliest days into a lifelong Christian. Um, one of my favorite prayers is that our children would never know a day apart from the Lord. And if we truly want that for our kids, we need to act like they're Christians from the day that they're born. We need to be praying with them 
you know, we need to be reading the Bible with them. We need to be taking them to church and worshiping with them. Um, so certainly the assumption that they, um, you know, aren't necessarily ready for a big conversation about faith until, you know, a certain age um, is something to combat. The other thing that I often see is that, you know, adults don't necessarily take kids very seriously. They don't, it's not that they, they don't believe that kids are smart, but it's that they think that kids don't care very much about deeper serious things or maybe aren't capable of processing deeper serious things. So as you mentioned the story of Noah, we teach them that story like it's a cute story about animals rather than like it's a horrifying judgment on the entire world. But what I've seen with my own kids is that they are way more interested um, in the big story than we give them credit for, and they are really ready to have their imaginations captured. You know, children love myths and fairy tales, and the Bible presents the greatest story and the greatest hero and the most wicked villain of all time. And so kids are going to be interested in that if only we give them an opportunity to see that story for what it is. Yeah, that's really good. And, you know, I, I'm thinking about that, that prayer that you refer to. It's, a, it's an Anglican collect uh, about praying, praying for children, praying that the congregation might support the family in that. And I've, I've personally known actually quite a number of people who simply from that line of praying for children that they might never know a day apart from you has really kind of revolutionized a lot of people's mindset that I've known uh, with respect to what we expect from our children religiously. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they might be capable of at a very young age and growing from that. Uh, can I just ask you or, or any of any of those who are on this call, uh, what are there particular ways in church experiences where you've seen this kind of cultural narrative uh, creep in? Um, you mentioned a few of those, Danielle, but uh, do any of you have some ways that you've seen that creep into how, how Christians have seen child rearing? I think a, a common thing that we see in the church is uh, sequestering the kids off, making them um, not a full part of the body of Christ, right? So kids go, instead of coming into the service where they're liturgically formed um, as part of our community, we send them off to Sunday school. And in Sunday school, they do coloring or they do whatever. Uh, sometimes there's a... Um, a lesson behind it. Sometimes there's some catechism that happens, but oftentimes it's just uh, time suck, you know, something to give the kids to do while the parents are in the, the big people church. And the assumption behind that is that kids aren't ready for church. You know, they can't sit through a sermon and understand what's being taught. Uh, they can't sit through the liturgy. Uh, there's no way that they could learn the liturgy they can't read yet, um, which is actually wrong. Uh, my son, John Paul, uh, who I'll brag on here uh, uh, for a, a moment, had the Nicene Creed memorized before he could read. And he had it memorized because we said it every Sunday and we said it at home. And through saying it with us, uh, he, he learned it. He memorized it. He could say it by himself. It's sort of like when we memorize a song, when we're driving in the car and we, we sing along with the song and eventually we learn the song and we can sing the song without it playing on the radio. Well, that's exactly what happened for, for John Paul. Uh, and it's happening for my other kids as well. As we repeat things over and over, um, we memorize them. And we may not fully understand the concepts that we're memorizing, uh, but it's getting in our bones. And it'll be there later when they have, um, have that capacity to understand what we're, we're saying. Um, but I think that's a big way. It's just assuming that they can't do what the rest of the body is doing and so we just 
push them off. You know, one one particular secular narrative that I hear explicitly from non-Christians is that um, that uh, religion is is simply passed down like a uh, parent to child, and like the so a, a reason like it's that genetic. some atheists, yeah, that, that atheists will talk about. You know, the reason you're a Christian is statistically primarily because your parents were Christians and the reason you're not a Hindu is because your, your parents were not Hindus or something like that, right? Um, and so it, it factors into you know, a lot of those conversations. Um, and uh, and I, I sometimes wonder if, uh, if, if Christians internalize that argument uh, to some extent, like because I am a believer, therefore my children are, um, and there, and then we don't think about the process by which that might happen, uh, and, and passing that along. Um, Danielle, in your experience with, with catechesis books, like you're, you're trying to be very intentional about getting these concepts across, uh, what, what's kind of the interplay there between how, how kids just pick up things without any effort from parents and the sort of intentional formation that we do? That's a great question. Um, I would say that the things that they pick up unintentionally from parents are as important um, as the intentional formation in the sense that your kids are going to pick up if church is a priority. They're going to pick up on if you are reading your Bible and if you're praying with them and if they see you pursuing a relationship with the Lord independent of the church community. And I think that them seeing that is very important. Likewise, if you go to church once a week and don't do anything in the in-between time, don't prioritize prayer and worship or having discussions with your kids, they're also going to pick up on that and they're going to know like either church isn't a priority or it is. Your Christianity and your faith isn't a priority or it is. And those unconscious cues are extremely important in terms of um, helping your child understand the importance of the faith life for themselves. But as far as intentional formation goes, I think that um, even if you're really great about prioritizing your own walk with the Lord, you have to be intentional about doing it with your kids as well. You can't just assume that they know things. Of course, they're going to pick up on things over time, but it's good to sit down and have conversations with them. And one of the things that I have been shocked by as I've produced these books is the number of parents who come to me and says how um, how much these books have strengthened their own faith, how much they've learned from these board books. And it's things like um, the two natures of Jesus being fully God and fully man. It never occurred to me that that was something that people struggled with until I had parents start coming to me going, wow, this was such a great, simple explanation. Thank you so much. It started me on this track of thinking and processing and further understanding my faith. And that's been a real gift and a blessing, but I'm so glad to also have my kids starting that at such a young age because that's a huge concept. Same thing with the Trinity. It's a huge concept. No adults fully understand what the Trinity is, let alone a child. But to start them thinking about it at a young age, to start them talking about it at a young age, I think is an incredibly important part of their faith formation. You know, uh, there, there are two ways I want to take this here. Uh, we, we've talked a little bit about what some of those cultural assumptions are. Um, and uh, we've already hit on some of the, some of the reasons that's not working. And, and I, I see two areas that these assumptions of like kind of automatic passing on uh, or the assumption that children need to wait until a certain age that I see two ways that those have uh, caused problems. One is specifically for Christians. And I'd like to hear a little bit from all of you on that. Um, but then also thinking more broadly about the culture, uh, 
in kind of parenting, again, I'm just thinking of friends of mine who are parents who are not believers of any sort, uh, and their assumptions about their own parenting sometimes play into this. Uh, in other words, um, while they aren't thinking about passing on religion, uh, to some degree they want to pass on their worldview or their ethics or something like that. Um, and uh, and I, I think I have a couple ideas of, of ways that that is not working for some of them or uh, or will have problems playing out um, as, as time goes on. Uh, can I just throw both of those out there to all of you? W what are some of the, the problems within our culture, uh, within um, especially like I would say parenting culture that seem to stem from some, um, some of these cultural narratives about how, how children pick up values? I think um, we, I, what I see a lot of times is the trend is that uh, kids are being left basically to a device. So they're left to a tablet or smartphone or the television, um, especially when, you know, parents just kind of want a moment of, you know, peace or something. And so they just say, well, just go on and, and watch these YouTube videos or go on and watch this thing or that thing or play this game or that game. And I think that, in a way, is kind of like setting it up to where the kids basically, instead of you know going outside and interacting with the world and it, it, around them, they're instead their world is basically here in this box. And I feel like that, um, and of course, that's forming them, their brains uh, neuro neuro neurologically as well. Um, you know, with that in the way that their their attention spans and everything. You know, one area that I see it in, in particular also among those who are uh, not not believers, um, but is is to, is is that just that parents often think that they, they over assume that uh, the values they have will be passed on to their children. And so it seems clear and automatic that such a thing would happen if they're doing a good job uh, or something like that. And uh, in particular, you know, I'd say, you know, for most people, um, you know, value systems are more assumed than like kind of um, deductively worked out. Right. And uh, and, it, and, it, it and because of that, we get a lot of our value systems from the culture around us. I, I see a lot of young parents who assume that where the culture has come to right now, as far as um, their, their values on uh, on justice, on poverty, uh, on environment, um, on uh, how, uh, kind of um, romantic relationships, uh, all kinds of things, that these things are what will happen for a well-developed child because they feel like they've developed to this point themselves and therefore a well-developed child will come to these places. Um, and I, A, I'm not so sure that it will continue to happen over time, but B, uh, the other issue is that um, the culture continues to develop and then parents are sometimes surprised by the values that therefore come through the schools, which are being intentional about their formation plans. And then it becomes a contest between the school's formation plan and the parents' sort of assumption plan, you know, assumptions that work out. Yeah, I think that's uh, an important observation. Um, one, that we're, we are not cognizant of our own role in forming, forming our kids uh, to that we end up abdicating unconsciously to the schools or uh, whatever it is outside of the faith community to, to form our kids. 
Uh, and then we are surprised when, well, why my kids walking away from the faith? Well, because they weren't formed in the faith. They, they were formed in a culture that's increasingly hostile to the faith. Um, and I think what's sort of ironic about that is um, in our context, in our culture, um, there's increasingly an understanding or assumption. One of the narratives basically is that the parents can't be trusted to raise their own kids. Uh, and especially those Christians or religious people can't be trusted to raise their own kids because they're going to raise radicals. Uh, and so the state has to do that through the institutions of the school. That's why you see like sex ed being done earlier and earlier and earlier is because they understand that there's a narrative that needs to be in, in, um, inhabited. Um, and we're often as the church, we're, we're blind to it. We don't, we don't see that. Um, we have to be telling our stories as well um, in order to counter those those cultural narratives. Danielle, I, I've got a question for you, uh, just how, kind of at least how you've processed this as you've kind of tried to think about these issues. Um, it does seem that for the most part, the more intentional that instructors or parents are in um, value formation, uh, the more that will be done as far as um, character formation in the process, right? Uh, so that, uh, because ultimately you're not passing on simply uh, data, uh, but also like a, a process of receiving that data or uh, an importance of, of uh, investing in those things, something like that. Um, how, do, how do you see character formation involved when when parents are trying to to pass on the faith to their children um i mean assuming that a parent has an orthodox faith and is following scripture i think the character formation goes hand in hand with spiritual and religious formation um you know i know a lot of christian moms who are working to teach their kids the fruit of the spirit and I think that's one of the best places to start when you're talking to small children about character formation. It's concrete. It helps them understand the values and virtues that they should be pursuing as a part of their character and asking the Holy Spirit to give them. And um, yeah, I certainly think that the more intentional you are about faith formation, the better character formation your children are going to have. I, you know, I wonder if, if, if that is one of the kind of cultural loose threads of some of these assumptions of sort of like automatic passing on or waiting till children get to a certain age is that um is that ultimately some form of character formation gets lost in the process there again for both non-christians and for christians and uh and and then and then we sort of expect them to pick up again whatever that cultural view of of justice is or of equality or something like that. Um, but it's untethered from a certain cultural form, uh, sorry, character formation. Right. Um, I, 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 I don't know. This is, this is obviously just, um, conjecture, but I just, I wonder if that relates then to susceptibility in later years to, um, extremism, uh, susceptibility to, um, uh, yeah, I don't know, just be, being taken in by various narratives uh, because character formation kind of necessarily instantiates like um, uh, like a sort of, um, I don't know, I want to I use the word individuality in the sense of being able to respond to, uh, being able to reflect back on the influences that are happening in your life. Um, so I, I, just, I wonder, 
in kind of my neighbors around me if, if that's some of the susceptibility that they're going to find in some of their own children. I mean, I suspect that you're probably right there. And as we're talking about cultural assumptions, one of the things that came to mind for me is that, especially from a secular perspective, um, it seems like people are increasingly concerned with letting kids choose things for themselves. Hmm. So letting them choose their own religion or letting them choose their own gender or letting them choose their own education method. I read one article about having to ask a child's permission, a baby's permission before you change their diaper, which anybody who's had a baby knows that that would be quite a challenge. And um, I mean, so much of parenting is making a hard decision for your kids, right? It's saying, no, your diaper is full of poop and you're going to get a rash. So we're going to change it whether you like it or not, not do you want me to do this? And um, I think that the more parents abdicate their responsibilities to teach their children things, to make hard decisions for their children, the more that children are just going to be formed by whatever they happen to come into contact with. So, I mean, religious beliefs are like um, language formation. You start acquiring them from the moment that you're born. And if you're not taught anything, you're still acquiring something. You're learning something. You're learning some kind of value. So if your parents aren't helping you with your moral formation, they're not helping you with the character formation, your religious formation, you're going to be formed by something else in the culture, whether that's the TV shows you watch or the neighbors around you or the friends or the teachers at your school, you will find some sort of thing that you believe is an authority and be formed by it as a child. And so it's up to a parent to help their child navigate those influences and to think critically about them. Um, And I think it's really devastating when parents abdicate this responsibility, particularly in the church. Let's. Uh, we're going to switch gears in just a minute here, uh, and we're going to talk about uh, what it will look like, what it would look like for the the kingdom to really flourish from within a culture that uh, has some problematic assumptions about these things, uh, but to flourish in such a way that it ministers to that culture in the midst of that culture. So we'll take a break here. Uh, let me remind our listeners right now to like, subscribe, to share the content. If, if you're enjoying it, um, follow it uh, along on any of your um, uh, podcast uh, listening platforms. And in the meantime, enjoy a few tunes from our own Jim Kitty. We'll be back in a minute. You are listening to Devices and Desires, Finding a Sacred World in a Secular Age. Like and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash devices and desires. Welcome back to Devices and Desires. I'm Brian Wandell, and we are talking with Danielle Hitchin from uh, Catechesis Books about uh, her work for child faith formation and we're trying to understand the cultural narratives about how children pick up values and religion uh, what the cracks are in those values and what we're doing now is we're going to try to imagine what it really looks like for the gospel to flourish from within that secular culture that within that secular narrative so as we get into this next part here i I know andrew you you've used some of these books uh, some of the catechesis books with your own children what's been your impression Uh, I have four boys and, uh, boys are not the easiest creatures in the world to get excited about books. Uh, though, bless the Lord, my, my boys do a pretty good job, but in part because they've been exposed to books like, uh, catechesis books and the baby believer books. Um, 
that and the fact that they're primers is um, makes them more engaging for our boys. Like, so I'm thinking of the Psalms, uh, where it's a motion book, and their favorite thing to do is to to go through the Psalm and everybody claps their hands when uh, clap your hands, all you people, and um, so they love the interaction, but they also love the beauty of the books. And uh, the the books go beyond just um, a presentation of the Apostles' Creed, like on a blank piece of paper. It comes with beautiful artwork with it, artwork that's appropriate, age appropriate, but not the the typical kind of kitsch um, stick figures or like twaddle like Pete the Cat. I know people have kids that love Pete the Cat, and I'm <laughs> sorry, but it's just not beautiful art. It It's not. Um, but there's something appealing in the beauty of these books. And I wonder, Danielle, if you could talk a little bit about the connection between beauty and uh, catechesis and the spiritual formation, the moral formation, um, the holistic formation of our kids. Sure. So we serve a God who is good, true, and beautiful. And I think sometimes Christians have a tendency to value the good and the true above the beautiful. And we relegate beauty to something that's just superfluous or nice to have, but not need to have, but it is absolutely a need to have, you know, God is the author of beauty. He made things beautiful. He made our world beautiful. He is the God who makes all things beautiful in its time. And if God so values beauty, then we as his people and his image bearers absolutely need to value beauty as well. And I knew from the outset when I wanted to write these books that they were going to be about our beautiful God. So they needed to be beautiful books. They needed to, um, we needed to create beautifully as God creates beautifully. We are called to be co-creators with God, which means that we are called to create beautiful things like he does. And I mean, the fact of the matter is parents and children enjoy things that are beautiful more than they enjoy things that are ugly. You know, that's just a true fact of humanity. So I wanted to make a book that was going to be appealing and a testament um, to who God is that would be an enjoyable reading experience for parents and children alike. Yes. Uh, if I could add just uh, the the tradition as a whole has taught that beauty is sort of our first contact with truth and love uh, and that it's beauty that draws us into that. And so I, I just love that you make these books uh, so beautiful to draw the children in to truth and love and goodness. It's, Thank it's you. great. Thank you. I'll tell you what, my kids give me a stack of five books. Uh, I pick the one that I most want to open. <laughs> so uh, it, has an, it has an impact on um, uh, natural selection of children's books as well. <laughs> I'm interested more about a concept that you were talking about, Danielle, and, and specifically, you know, what this could look like for families. Uh, when you talked about um, a religion and language formation, because uh, I think that's a really interesting way of looking at things. Um, how, how did you come to understand that connection with the way people pick up on language and the way they pick up on, I think both, you know, both religious content as well as maybe spirituality, like how they feel like they connect to God uh, and to things that are unseen. Uh, can you explain some of the connection there? Well, as we were talking about earlier, the, um, prayer for children from the Book of Common Prayer that they might never know a day apart from the Lord, I think has really impacted the way that I think about children's spiritual formation um, and came up with the metaphor of language acquisition. You know, from the moment a child is born, they are hearing 
language. They are cataloging language in their head. They are starting to understand how to make sounds. They are understanding what different sounds um, mean and how, you know, different noises mean different things. And I think that the same thing is true for spiritual formation. As I mentioned earlier, children see whether or not, um, parents prioritize the spiritual life, whether or not they prioritize worship and church and, uh, Bible reading and prayer. And, um, you know, if we truly want them to never know a day apart from the Lord, then we need to treat them as if they are being spiritually formed from the day they're born in the same way that, you know, we um, anticipate them learning whatever language we are speaking to them from the day that they are born. So, I mean, that's where that's where the basic metaphor came from. But I remember when my um, oldest daughter was about two, she asked to pray for dinner and she said, Our Father, how you doing? Amen. But I was just so pleased that she got the Our Father. I realized that she was actually starting to pick up on some of the things that we were um, doing with her in, in regular life. And she didn't know anything else, but she knew the Our Father. And it was just such a delight to start to see the way that, um, you know, the the words of scripture and of our prayers were seeping into her heart and mind, even from a very young age. So I've seen, and I've seen that evidenced over and over again in my children. Um, I really think that, you know, children are incredibly spiritual from the time that they're born and they just need somebody to model how to do that well for them. So, so one of the words that we sometimes use, I know Andrew and I sometimes use in ministry for some of this is catechesis. Uh, and it's a word that is traditionally associated uh, simply with like a, a question and answer catechism that you might mm -hmm. do in a class, you might do with a religious leader of some kind. And some of the ways that we have tried to talk about this uh, is on that more general level, the way that we we are learning all the time, we're picking things up from people all the time. Uh, you know, one I, I picked this up a little bit from this idea up from uh, another source. There's, um, I think he's a Methodist, uh, a, a, a psychologist, a developmental psychologist um, who is down at um, Asbury or something like that, who's in Kentucky, named Don Joy. He wrote a number of books in like the 80s and 90s. And he called the family the first curriculum, mm. uh, which I think ties together with, with how we're talking about catechesis here. Uh, the family is the first curriculum, the, the first learning of things. Um, you, you, have, you have some books here that you've been working on through catechesis books, these board books. Um, can you expand on that vision a little bit beyond the like reading board books to your children about some of the ways in which maybe for your own family, you see your fam your, your family as the first curriculum for your children as you see catechesis in your family. Yeah. So, um, you know, the first thing I wrote on the top of the first word document I opened to start drafting these books was Deuteronomy six, five through seven. You shall love the Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today should be on your heart. You will teach them to your children. That's a slightly truncated version, but that's the version I'm going with. Um, but, you know, from from the earliest days, God gave his people the command that not only were they to learn to love and worship him, they needed to teach those values and those laws and those commandments to their kids. And, um, you know, that wasn't just done in the temple. That was done by parents and by family members and extended family members. Um, and as parents, we're our kids' first teachers in everything. We're our kids' first teachers in virtue and in safety and in truth-telling. And um, this is equally true in, in worship and spiritual formation. 
So, you know, I absolutely think that the family needs to, um, parents need to have in their minds that they are their kids' primary teachers and, and formers when it comes to religion. Like, we cannot leave this up to the church. I mean, at best, the church sees your kids maybe for two hours once a week, maybe twice a week if you're, you know, you go twice a week. But that's not nearly as much time as a parent gets to spend with their child on a weekly basis. And the church can really only reinforce the things that are being taught at home. It can't do the heavy lifting of spiritual formation that's required um, for a young child. That's really a parent's responsibility. Do you have some specifics from your own family, Danielle? Um, so, I mean, do you just want like anecdotes? Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. like, okay. Please. <laughs> <laughs> And in particular, um, ones that have gone one, ones that have gone wrong, because <laughs> I have oh. one of those. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'll have to think about ones that have gone wrong. But I think one thing that I really enjoy doing with my parents, or not my parents, with my children, is adapting um, the Ignatian spiritual practice of examining yourself um, and identifying desolation and consolation. And the way that I adapt that with my kids is to ask them what made you sad today and what made you happy. And sometimes I get ridiculous answers about dinosaurs or, you know, monster trucks or whatnot. But sometimes I get really genuine answers. And it's so precious to me to be able to pray through those joys or those heartaches with my children. Um, and uh, one other thing that I do with my two-year-old, my youngest at this point, as I often ask her, well, you know, who loves you? And she said, mommy. I said, yeah, but who loves you the most? And she says, God. And I think it's stuff like that that's um, really important for helping your children understand, you know, just where they're placed in the family life and in the love of God. And, um, you know, seeing on a regular basis that you lift them up to the Lord and that you desire their goodness and their flourishing. Yes. We uh, we tried we did a, a version of the Ignatian thing there for a while that I got from another priest. Um, he said like if we're thinking about like a positive and negative, it's like a paradox that we're looking at. And the word paradox sounds like pair of ducks, paradox. And so the kids, so we did this for a while every day. Like the kids would say, "What was your yay duck and what was your yuck duck today? <laughs> uh, what was the what was the good and what was the positive?" And uh, we list our yay duck and our yuck duck every day. Yeah, we do something like that during dinner. Um, we do highs and lows, essentially. So what was the high? What was the best part about your day? What was the worst part of your day? And we've been doing that for a while. And it's funny because sometimes if we sit down and maybe we don't start initially, like my kids, my son who's four, um, is all of a sudden like wants to get right into it. So what's your high and your low, Dad? It's just like, okay, hold on a second. We'll get we'll, we'll get in there. You know, just I, sat down. I thought about this a lot when I was when we when we had our first child um, who was born in 2010, and and I, I was just you know just trying to process you know I was 26 at the time just trying to figure out what what was going on basically, and I remember thinking like how how do I get what's inside me as far as like what it feels like for me to connect to God, like how do I get that to the inside of my daughter right and um obviously you can't force anything right but but what what will be the process of of that and and i feel like the one thing that i started to realize over time and and part of the difficulty for this is that i'm someone who is more naturally introverted and so not everything you know there's there's a fair bit like that's going on in my mind that i'm not expressing just because i'm not a super expressive person but uh but I, i just i realized that you know i i 
my my assumptions and feelings and kind of processing on the inside uh, will not pass on in and of itself. Like again, that kind of cultural assumption, like it is not just going to get there because she's my daughter, uh, and probably not even just because I like take her to church or we have some religious activities. Um, but what I want is for her to get the kind of like um, experience of things, the the way that I process through things as as a believer you know and, I, and I, what i realized is that i think a part of myself had to change in the process and that uh that i had to be a little bit more explicit about expressing and verbalizing what was primarily interior so that she could then mimic that or or catch that and then from there make it interior so like interior of myself to exterior of myself to exterior of herself to interior of herself and I, I've tried to, I've tried to like put that into practice with the way that we do prayer um, as a family, and you know, so we start out, you know, and uh, and when it begins, I'm just saying the prayers, right? And they're they're so small, right? So they're just like there while I'm saying prayers, right? Um, and then eventually it gets to a point where they are. Uh, you know, I, I force them to repeat after me, you know, so I say three words, they say three words, uh, and then eventually they say something longer. And then eventually, you know, so we, we all, we all pray for someone over at dinner time, right? And then they have to decide who to pray for. I give them the words and eventually they decide who, who to pray for and they come up with the prayer themselves. But I, I needed that first step in the process for myself of, I think in some ways, like becoming... A catechist, uh, becoming an instructor, right? Which didn't feel natural for myself, but that externalizing, which didn't feel supernatural, has become more a part of who I am as I'm around my children, and I just, I, I talk about what I'm, what's going on inside of me. I think that um, the observation about coming, becoming a catechist yourself, uh, is important for all of us. Uh, as parents to understand that, that we have that high and mighty calling. Uh, Danielle mentioned the Deuteronomy passage, Deuteronomy six, five through seven, and we can actually broaden that out to four through nine as a block that we call the Shema, which was a liturgical part of the, the worship of God's early people, Israel. And in that, we're sort of given a program, I think, for how we get our beliefs from inside us to inside our kids. Um, and there's an intentionality go that goes with that, but we're, we're told there to remember with our kids, uh, to tell them the story of salvation, right? Tell them how I brought you out of Israel and now I'm bringing you into the promised land. Uh, and, do that throughout all the patterns of the day, you know, the, the, the laying down at night, the getting up in the morning, the eating, the working. Uh, so walk alongside them and tell them my story, your story, who you are for me. Uh, and I'm getting out a little ahead of myself. I meant to ask Danielle a question about this and I'm, I'm preaching. Uh, I've got my collar on today. So, uh, Daniel, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You have that prominently displayed on your website, so we know it's an important thing for you. But I'd love to hear you sort of talk a little bit more about the um, that intentionality uh, and the narrative um, shape of our catechesis of our children, as well as 
uh, the liturgical shape uh, of our catechesis. So when, um, before I started writing these books, my daughter was about 18 months old and somebody asked me, well, what are you doing for her spiritual development? This is my oldest, my only one at the time. And I was like, oh, I mean, she's 18 months old, I'm keeping her alive, right? Like, I don't know what else I'm supposed to be doing. And, um, you know, then I had the idea for these books and I thought, you know what, if we teach our children to count everything under the sun, ducks, flowers, trucks, cars, whatever, we teach them to count everything. Why don't we teach them to count meaningful things? Why don't we teach them to count persons of the Trinity and Beatitudes and Fruits of the Spirit and Ten Commandments? And, um, I, you know, I think the shape of catechesis looks different depending on your child's age. I mean, it has to. An 18-month-old can't do what an 18-year-old can. But um, I think as parents, it's our job to assume from their earliest days that these children are going to be raised to know and love the Lord and to act like they already do. Um, so in that sense, I created these books to help parents of very young children start to catechize their kids. And I think about the word catechesis not only in relation to a question and answer catechism, but more broadly as education in the Christian tradition, which, you know, comes through um, liturgy and worship. It comes through a formal catechism. It comes through Bible study. It comes through prayer. It comes through um, communion in the body of believers and partaking of the sacraments. And... Um, you know, I, I hoped that my books would be a first step for parents because there is not, well, when I started writing, I should say, there was not a lot out there for kids under the age of three or so. Even most storybook Bibles aren't really geared for kids under the age of three. Um, and so I felt like that the education in the Christian tradition should start for kids as soon as they're able to, you know, sit on your lap and look at a book, which I don't know about you guys, but I started reading to my kids when they were about six weeks old. And I think that's just a really sweet time to be able to sit with them and enjoy a story um, or a book or pictures with them. And so I've loved being able to do that um, with more Bible-based, faith-based, theology-based material. And um, in terms of uh, liturgical formation for children, um, I absolutely think that it's important for them to be in church with families, which isn't to say that they can't break out into their own Sunday school. Um, and I found that particularly during the sermon, I really need for my kids to be out of the sanctuary, you know, when they're, you know, a year old or three years old, it's just not the right time for them to be listening to a sermon. Um, but I do love having them in there for the first part of the service where they get to hear the word of God, where we get to sing hymns together. And I love having them in there um, for the prayers and for communion. And I have seen those things work powerfully to form my own children. I can remember my um, son when he was two belting out the Sanctus at a water park. I mean, he found something that acted like a microphone and he was just going for it. And um, I didn't even realize that he knew it at the time. One day we looked over when he was three and he was saying the prayer of humble access. Again, not something that we had ever taught to him formally, but it was something that he had internalized in his own heart and mind and was able to participate in church. And I think that kind of liturgical spiritual formation goes to show that kids are just little sponges. They are ready to soak up whatever it is that you have to offer them. So it's important to make sure you're offering them the right things, both at home and at church. Yeah. Danielle, this has been really helpful. Um, can I just ask you, as we finish up here, uh, where, where can people find materials from Catechesis Books? Uh, you can find me on the web at catechesisbooks.com. If you can't spell catechesis, you can also find me at babybeliever.com, which is the title of the Primer series. I know catechesis is a tricky one. Um, 
And you can also find me on Instagram and Facebook for more uh, readily available updates about what's coming up with the books and, you know, what's new on our website. And you sell things other than books too, right? I do. I sell art from the books, so prints and posters. I also sell a set of Apostles' Creed memorization cards for those who are looking to work on that with their own children. Um, And there's a few other coloring items, calendars, you know, that sort of thing on the site as well. Danielle, thank you so much. This has been important, I think, an important conversation for us. I think it's something that uh, is going to be helpful for a lot of people. Uh, You've been listening to Devices and Desires, where we're taking a deep dive into the cultural narratives that fill our lives in order to imagine what it's like for gospel-centered communities to really flourish from within that modern culture. Our Lord Jesus has the power and the creativity to bless the world that we live in. So would you join us next time on Devices and Desires as we seek that out in our own lives. 